Uh, thank you everybody for coming. My name is Joshua Davidowitz. I'm just going to be the panelist and then they'll take it from here. Uh, okay, uh, so just a quick introduction of our panelists. Uh, Dr. Tamara Morsel Eisenberg is a historian of early modern Jewry. Uh, she studies the history of knowledge in 16th century Ashkenaz, especially the world of halacha. Tamara went to Migdalos in 2006-2007 and received her degree <coughs> in philosophy at the Hebrew University. Tamara wrote her dissertation at the History Department of the University of Pennsylvania on the topic of halacha and the history of knowledge in 16th century Ashkenaz. She teaches and lectures widely in academic and Jewish contexts. She is currently a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows and divides her time between Cambridge and the Upper West Side, where she lives with her husband, Ori, and her two sons, Yechiel and Emmanuel. And if I, she's the second to the right here. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Yael Lamin Wormuth is visiting research fellow in Judaic Studies at Brooklyn College, an acquisitions editor of Gorgias. Did I pronounce this? that right <laughs> <laughs> She holds a PhD in Hebrew Bible from Yeshiva University and a MBA from the University of Pennsylvania, is an alumnus of Migdalos, and has completed fellowships to the Association for Jewish Studies, the Tikkur Center for Law and Jewish Civilization at NYU School of Law, and the Center for Jewish Law and Contemporary Civilization at Kadoja Law School. Yael has taught at Yeshiva College, Yeshiva College and the Jewish Institute. Chaim Seiman, to my right, Seiman. Uh, Chaim Seiman is a scholar of Jewish law, insurance law, and private law at Villanova University, and has just published Halacha, the Rabbinic Ideal of Law, with Princeton University Press. Professor Seiman has been the gross visiting professor of Talmudic law at both Harvard Law School and the University of Pennsylvania Law School, a visiting fellow at Princeton University, and a visiting professor at the University of Toronto, Bar-Ilan, <coughs> Hebrew University, and IDC Faculties of Law. Chaim also serves as a Dayan for the Basin of America as an expert witness in insurance law and Jewish law in federal court. I never knew that you could be an expert in Jewish law in federal court, but it's good to know. Prior to entering law and teaching, Chaim learned for a number of years at Yeshiva Haaretzion and Karen Biyavna was a law clerk to Judge Michael McConnell on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals and an associate with the law firm Cleary Gottlieb in New York. And finally, leading our panel today is Rabbi Dr. Michael Berger. Rabbi Dr. Michael Berger is Associate Professor of Jewish Ethics at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where he's been teaching courses in Jewish studies and religion since 1994. He attended Yeshiva Har for three years, starting in 1980, and has received smicha from Rav Amital Zatzal and Rav Shlomo Levi. He has published his own work, as well as edited Rav Salavishik Zatzal's Emergence of Ethical Men, and most recently, Rav Aaron Zatzal's Return and Renewal. For the last 18 years, he has also served as a program officer for the Avichai Foundation. And with that, I'll turn it over to Rabbi Dr. Michael Berger. Thank you very much. Welcome, uh, everybody. It seems like girls are always supposed to start with a joke, right? So I worked hard on this part. Uh, so a Rosh Hashiva and an academic are sitting next to each other on the outside. And they start to, you know, they're reading interesting texts. So the Rosh Hashiva leans over to the professor and says, what do you do? He says, well, I teach. He says, oh, I teach too. He says, what age do you teach? He says, I teach like 18 to 22, 23. He says, Oh, I teach that too. So, says, how big are your classes? Says, I have classes between 250, 500. Rosh Hashiva says, wow, you must go to a lot of weddings. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was an appropriate way to uh, introduce uh, something about this topic of uh, the academy and, and the yeshiva, because Frankly, um, somebody right out of high school, uh, I started at Yeshiva in 1980. Uh, it's just hard to imagine that I'm older than Rav Lissensen Zatzal when I first met him at this point. And one of the experiences of Yeshiva is a profound intellectual and religious experience. 
But the intellectual is something that, especially coming out of day schools in North America, it's something really unique. It's all-encompassing. And if you're enjoying it, it's very natural when you then go on to university to pursue that intellectual strain of understanding of, of our, our own tradition where it happens in a very different context. And so uh, the people who put together these panels for, for the pre-dinner program thought that this question of the relationship of the yeshiva world uh, particularly of Yeshiva Haratian and Miguel Oz, to academic Jewish studies was worth hearing uh, from uh, august panelists, several of whom have uh, just recently uh, made, that, uh, made that transition. And I'd like to, I'll be really just asking a few questions, but to keep in mind that as much as we say uh, traditional Yeshiva study, Certainly in the world of brisk, it, it's a sort of an accepted range of, of academic or intellectual approaches and methodologies. When it comes to Jew academic Jewish studies, we have to acknowledge that there's a tremendous diversity, what we mean, both in terms of uh, period, uh, subject matter, um, and, uh, and methodology. So I think we're going to cover quite a few questions this afternoon, um, and I will... Uh, really be focusing on the comparison and contrast and whether these two fields and approaches have something to contribute to each other or their, their tension is something that can be addressed either fruitfully or in other ways. And I'm sure we'll pepper the entire hour with uh, anecdotes of uh, uh, stories that we know and, and conversations we've had uh, with, the, uh, with the people who, are, who mean so much to us. So, I'll just start off by, uh, we'll, we'll start off with uh, you, Yael. Uh, but the question is really, uh, what would you take, in a brief uh, way, what would you take to be the um, conceptual or intellectual difference between the traditional study in the yeshiva and academic Jewish studies? How do we approach Torah, how do we approach halakha in those two worlds? What would, how would you summarize the distinction or difference? So, thank you. And should I use this? Does this help? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I have one here. Um, so, <coughs> first of all, just to clarify, my field is Bible, um, which in Hebrew would be Mikra and not Tanakh, and mm -hmm. it's kind of different. When we're talking about Tanakh, the conceptual approach that goes along with that is one where it's ours. It's part of our identity, part of our history, part, very clearly part of our Jewish story. Whereas when approaching the Bible in the academy, we're looking at it from a distance, academically, scientifically. It's not even clear that it belongs in academic Jewish studies. So at the uh, AJS Association for Jewish Studies conferences, there's actually a very small, uh, you know, nice but small Bible representation every year. Um, and it's not always clear in any given Jewish studies context in the academy that Bible even belongs. So I think, first off, that's kind of a, a distinction that's not really obvious when you're coming from the perspective of, you know, this is my Tanakh that I grew up with. And, you know, we study it as sort of the beginning point of this <coughs> 
entire chain of tradition, but it's part of that chain, and it's ours. And that is very much um, different from the stance that you take when approaching it academically. Um, if I begin, I could let. Let's hear from our other Yes. So um, one of the major differences, which in a sense I think goes together a little bit with what Yale was talking about, is that um, really in the field of history, one of the things that's simultaneously very liberating, but also very strange to someone who comes from sort of a religious perspective and then goes on to do Jewish history, is that you're in a field, and this is especially <coughs> true in most universities at the United, in the United States where there is no Jewish studies department separately. So you're in a regular history department. Um, and you're dealing with this, in a sense, together with many other people who are dealing with different historical periods. And um, in a way, it's not so engaged, meaning everyone has their topic that they study. And the reason I said it's very liberating is that nobody asks you why specifically that topic, why specifically those people, why this time period, other than, I mean, you have to prove that it answers an interesting question or that it matters somehow or that it's good comparatively or something like that. But you usually don't have the issue of having to justify why, which makes it very liberating because you don't need to explain to people why Jews, why this period, which, I mean, my undergrad I did in philosophy, and there I find it much harder because there you have to some way justify that the philosophy you're dealing with is, you know, somehow matters to you more or something. Whereas in history, I mean, anything's fine, and I've had many colleagues that I'm good friends with that deal with things that, frankly, I don't understand why they want to spend their whole days doing that, but that's fine, and it's legitimate, and I don't have to, in a way, explain it to them either. So in that sense, it's very liberating. Um, in another sense, obviously, one of the reasons, personally, that I'm interested in this stuff um, is something that, in a way, they wouldn't understand. Right? To say that I'm interested in the history of the Jewish people, and I'm his interested in the history of Halakha, is because it personally means a lot to me, and there are questions there that I feel I need to answer for you know, personal reasons, religious reasons, identity reasons, like that's why I'm drawn to it. That's why I think it's something that's worth doing with my time. Um, and those kind of things are things I can never say to them. So there's a strange divide that, on the one hand, you know, I don't owe anyone an explanation, but somewhere they don't get me all the way. So I'd say that's that's the biggest difference for me. Thank you, Brian. Okay, hi. Uh, so. I'm like a little bit of a weird fish because I'm not really in Jewish studies. I live in a law school. Um, and that's like a very different world um, than, than I think what Yao and Damar and Sundergree Rabbi Berger are talking about, though it intersects in, in a lot of different ways. The, the word that came up repeatedly, which I have on my sheet too, is, is comparative. Is that, you know, if you're doing Jewish law or halakha, and in law school it's typically called Jewish law, and I think it's a little bit like the Mikra point, I was purposely called my book Halakha, um, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're, you're inevitably, if you're in an American law school and you're talking about Jewish law, you're inevitably talking about it comparatively, even if you're not directly. In the yeshiva, you know, there, there's no sense, I don't think it's a goal, uh, walking out of Shir and Babakama, that you can go and talk to a lawyer who does torts. It's like, maybe nice if you can, or maybe bad, but certainly it's, it's not one of the goals. The frames of reference are different, and, and there's no attempt to do that. Um, sitting in a law school, if I'm writing in rabbinic Hebrew only, right, I will not be conceived of doing my job. I have to 
be able to talk to some sort of external and necessarily comparative body. The other thing, and this is what has driven me since my days in yeshiva, is that certainly when we think of things like Baba Kama, Baba Mitzia, the things that are most, I would say, comparative to what we do in law schools, um, there's not a sense of like, hmm, what kind of world is this reflecting? You know, what kind of commercial apparatus is this reflecting? What sort of tort system is this reflecting? Even with Masachah Sanhedrin, right, sort of what, what kind of criminal law regime is this reflecting? These are questions that honestly bothered me tremendously uh, in yeshiva. And, you know, maybe around the edges, but basically you don't ask those. It would be bizarre to say, hmm, the contract terms in Hamocher Sasfina make no economic sense and lead to inefficient results. That would just be weird. I I was that kid. I asked those questions, and I got the weird weird looks. That's exactly the kind of question you're going to ask in the law school. Sort of whatever the regime is, what does it make sense? Who does it favor? What, What types of commerce is it allowing or not allowing? Um, so law school is very attuned. It's not, I think, like in classic GSAs, it's sort of textual critical uh, language. It's, it's not tools lawyers know much know much about. And in that way, it's, quote, safer than I think some of the disciplines y'all come from. It's going to land a word. Um, but uh, but it's, it's challenging in a different way because it's asking, well, what are the consequences of these rules? Who does it favor in society? A rule is, is you know, is this rule in, in, in Ona or in Ribbis? Like, who... Like, what, what sort of society is it constructing and representing, and what does that work, and how can it work? Um, and these are questions that you typically don't ask in yeshiva. Also, right in yeshiva, you're typically not chasing down the Gemara, maybe into the Rishonim for sure, but a little bit into the Poskim, but not into the Shutim, and not into places where this thing actually gets hashed out. So you're also like the, the sort of Alajan tradition, obviously reflected in yeshiva and Arzion, is not even like looking at that side of, of the world. Um, so I think those, to me, are some of the big differences. I'll just pause, because we're, we're going to tell a little bit of stories. Like, there's something, you know, this is a little bit to, to the points you all made, right? That, that uh, the why, right? In, in law schools, you sort of do have to ask, why are you studying this, right? One of the amazing things about yeshiva is that you need no reason to come up to somebody and say, I'd like to know, right, whether this form of transaction is ribis or not, right? It's just the, the, something that yeshiva or yeshiva culture, and really the way it presents sort of more widely, that to me is of endless fascination, is that we constitute and construct these discussions that, I mean, some of them, of course, have no parallels in, in modern American law schools, but a lot of them do. And I always think, I'm teaching this doctrine in my contracts class, and, you know, this is like you know, your contracts class and what we're doing here is, you know, preparing for a profession or whatnot. And I can come home that night and study basically the exact same thing, and we call it a Vodas Hashem. Uh, and that's just, like, endlessly fascinating to me. Now, it's not always the same, of course, but if we just, to make the point, right, imagine that certain rules are exactly the same. We're very, very close. But yet our emotions, our associations about them are totally different, right? It would be, I mean, you're not really supposed to learn during Chazar Sashas, right? But if you're sitting there, like with the Babakama, it's okay. If you pull out Prostor on torts, it's not. And and th- these, to me, are some of like, the very interesting things, and, and really what, what so much drove me, uh, both in Yeshiva and thereafter. Actually, what Chaim brought up is a great segue into the question of 
not just the differences conceptually, but actually the tension or the conflict that uh, that academic Jewish studies poses to uh, what we do in yeshiva, or even just to traditional interpretations of, of Torah and halacha. And if you could give some examples of time, you kind of uh, touched on that already. So why don't we hear from uh, Tamara first, and then Yael, if you could just give some uh, examples of where you see there, there being some conflict. I want to make sure that, that you, you address some of these questions. <laughs> I was just added to raise the median age. <laughs> um, so in terms of tensions and conflicts, um, I mean, definitely the, the emphasis in those two worlds is very different. And um, often the tensions are just in my, ch- my chapters generally or my articles or anything I write tend to be too long. And often the tension is just, where do I cut and what do I take out? And things that I find extremely important and like the most interesting part of what I'm doing and where it all matters, so I'll have some sort of you know, historical theory about you know, why a certain halakha is discussed in a certain way in the Middle Ages and then differently in the 16th century. And you know, the theory sounds very interesting and I bring in all the you know, necessary thinkers about history and memory and law and how these things develop and I do the whole bibliography part. And then I have like a you know, 50 page thing on in the versus and how it plays out and how it exactly shows what I'm trying to say. And I find it super exciting. And then my advisor says, you know, this just makes me traumatized and I didn't even go to Yeshiva, take it out. And, you know, that's that's attention to me. Like, the thing where I, and I always, you know, he's like, I know you have to prove you can do this thing, but really we don't care, it's fine. You know, we love the bibliography part where you brought in all these different theorists about history and memory, and we don't really need the whole heavy thing, and it's okay. And I'll, you know, I'll try to justify it, in my opinion, on historical grounds and say, you know, but this is where I show that the theory works. Like, that's why we're historians, right? We care about how these phenomena play out in history. Um, so, you know, I think in a way it's not attention, but definitely in terms of the emphases and the priorities of, you know, what, what you put out there versus what's the stuff you can stick in the footnotes or even cut out, um, I often sense... You know, I often sense these moments of, of tension. That will be one example I bring up. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. So I think, I, I look, I'm the Bible person here, so I think I am probably resting the place where there are most sources of tension. Um, yeah. Oh, sources was a pun. <laughs> <laughs> but I, this really has to do largely with the theme of history and you know, this plays out in a number of ways. So Bible scholars are very interested in, you know, what is the the history, but really the prehistory of, you know, the text that we have. And, you know, the discussions and conclusions and um, many different hypotheses now that, you know, have played out here, you know, really are very difficult to reconcile with anything that could go on in a baby drash. And I, it's, it's very difficult. I think it just is. Um, you know, I think a lot about something I read once in, um, you know, Hobbes' work, uh, Leviathan, you know, after spelling out this very grand and detailed and complicated 
theory, he asks a bunch of challenging questions and then just says, hard questions. And I think that's kind of um, where we get to when you're coming from this yeshiva perspective and then you walk into the academy and everything is very focused on history in a way that really um, is very difficult to square together. Um, but that also plays out in other ways, like being interested in the historical background to the events and the people and um, basically everything that you have written anywhere in Tanakh um, and fleshing out you know, the social background, the legal background, um, the cultural or economic or political or any kind of background that you have, which is incredibly illuminating potentially to how you read um, you know, a given passage in Tanakh, but which is really not the kind of thing um, that one would expect to do, um, let's say, in a yeshiva context. And I'll just add, I'm situated in a uh, department of religion, which is its own, uh, no, it's, it's really its own beast, and one that self-flagellates regularly. Why we even exist uh, is it's just a protective strategy for Protestantism, but uh, it's a very serious thing that every 10, 15 years, the field goes through this kind of self-reflection, why do we exist, why should we be on an, on an academic campus, um, Universities in Europe are arrayed differently in terms of the study of religion. Um, so I, I also <coughs> experience tensions that sort of follow up. The social scientific method um, is considered the only legitimate approach, really. I mean, to some degree, philosophy of religion, but sometimes that happens in a philosophy department. But the trend um, in the last 20, 25 years, and that was something that I also wanted to highlight that. Um, academic or, or intellectual orientations evolve in the academy. So when I went in, into Jewish studies, philosophy of religion was actually a very hot area. I mean, it was just, there was a lot, if anybody knows Nicholas Walters talk, there was a whole, Richard Swinburne, there, were, there was a lot of writing and, and theorizing in philosophy of religion, and I went into it partly because I wanted to sort of be a Jewish voice in, in, that, uh, in that conversation. Uh, but after I got an <coughs> academic position and I was seeing what sessions they were having at academic conferences and who would accept my papers or articles, uh, so unless you're writing about the other people's philosophies and you're really just a commentator, you're not uh, constructive in, in any way, um, social scientific approaches, anthropology in particular has become an ethnography, are now very, I mean, we have done at Emory about four searches in the last six years, and they all, uh, three of the four touch on either anthropology or ethnography. Because if you want to bring in other voices that have not been, you know, they didn't leave a written record, or they don't, I mean, you want to study women, you know, in South India, uh, women who are healers, uh, they're not writing anything, they're not publishing anything, any, anything. So the only way to really study them is to do an ethnographic uh, study. So that, uh, that sort of forces everything into uh, what do you call presentism, in other words, what we could see uh, today. But the, the categories that you would use um, are uh, purely anthropological, sociological, um, the ideas that we would normally think about in yeshiva. Um, and I remember, um, that's how we were together at several orthodox forums that YU used to uh, conduct every year around this time because of the dinner. 
Um, and the whole question of whether to historicize a Rishon, forget Chazak, right? But even a Rishon, like how would the Rambam come to this approach? And uh, and Rav Lichtenstein really articulated this tension. Like we obviously he has a different opinion than some other Rishonim. We're tempted to say influence of Greek philosophy or or Aristotle or whoever it might be, or the Muslim milieu, but yet we in the yeshiva would look for other explanations as to why he had his the position uh, that he took. And it was with a sort of a, a real trepidation to bring in these very historic, socio-cultural and historical uh, factors. So that's where I feel a lot of the tension uh, in the academy. I have to resort to these tools to explain a lot of, of religion. And, uh, and going back and doing either philosophy of religion or understanding uh, things that, as I would see as more natural extensions of the what we did in yeshiva, are are much harder. So can, can I? Uh, <coughs> so I want to say two things. One, it's interesting. It's worth thinking about whether you know we talked about whether academic culture changes and how it changes. Like it's interesting thing about whether and how yeshiva culture changes. Um, but I just want to pipe in from a law school perspective again. There is a way in which there's something very challenging because. My guess is some in the room have been through an American legal education, and there's a there's a story told uh, in basically every law school, and it goes like this: Once upon a time, there was this thing called legal formalism. Legal formalism is a reasonable stand-in for brisk, or brisk is a is a fair, um, maybe an extreme form of legal formalism, <laughs> and, and that reigned, interestingly, in the like 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and then around. The 1910s, 20s, interestingly, when Jews start showing up on the American legal scene, so I would say you go from the three names to the two names, from the Oliver Wendell Holmes and Walter Wheeler Cooks to the Morris Cohens and the Felix Cohens and the Felix Frankfurters and the Morris Arnolds and the Benjamin Cardozas. All of a sudden, and there's an interesting story here to talk about Jews in the legal academy, it's like, um, you know, we've been enlightened, and a movement called American Legal Realism, which is very skeptical and it's not a historical question, it's, a, it's an analytical question. It's very skeptical that the legal materials, whatever they may be, um, are actually answering the legal questions. And that there's other factors that are un- typically go unacknowledged in the formal legal sources. Now, the, they debated what those are, but they were very skeptical uh, that that there's you get from A to B and that like it's it's a necessary legal construct the one you know uh, go the other very interesting the metaphor they used um, was um, was geometry and for those who know of course the Ruff's works physics is, is working uh, that way um, and and that's and then like the next hundred and something years are sort of okay we all believe in legal realism what do we do now how does law work what do we do and like there's lots of different theories now, this to me, personally, it was a very challenging thing. First of all, I was already feeling some of this. I had discussions with Rebel Lichtenstein while still in Yeshiva, and then I remember I came back, and first I was sh- sort of floored that he had heard of American legal realism. You know, like, where we would have gotten this, I don't know, but he clearly knew, um, you know, the main players, and we, we had a long talk about it. Uh, and it was one of those those moments. Like I, I remember wishing I could like bring him with me into the classroom and like talk to the professor because like no, but, but that really makes like a good point, isn't it? And, like what would you say? And I tried having this conversation with him, and of course I was not. I was I was a chaser mikan mikan. 
So in, in that way, like what can seem in yeshiva as like a novel chiluk or a new hakira or a new way of analyzing things, to the realist is like, right, see, it's, it's imminently plastic. And like you can do that there. You can also do that there, 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 there. And exactly what was so beautiful and sort of like, oh, we, we now like uncover uh, in a kind of yeshiva uh, way of approaching a sugi is precisely the data that the realist uses to see, you see, if you're really good at this, and yeshiva, you know, rebeim are nothing if not very good at this, uh, it's imminently plastic. And that's sort of the, the lesson of American legal realism. And I think that way um, it's tempting. Of course, you can always, I think this is where it's different than Jewish you can always draw a line, right? Torah l'chud and law l'chud. Uh, because we're actually not studying Torah, we're studying um, law. But a sensitivity to the method, you know, for in a certain type of person, uh, your your mind is likely to wander and to begin to try to, you know, see how these things are, are affecting each other. So let's turn to something a little bit um, more positive and <laughs> thinking about could academic Jewish studies, or do can they benefit and support the traditional Approaches, meaning that we spoke a little bit about tension for the last uh, 10 minutes, but are there either mutually beneficial or, or supportive uh, relationships between the two? And we'll start with Tamara in the middle, so we give you a chance. So I definitely think there... And give examples, please. Um, so a lot, a lot of this can be supportive. Um, I think definitely the way in which the discipline of history has evolved, um, intellectual history has evolved, um, is in a way to um, draw a much broader view. So if the way in which intellectual history used to work is that you look really at ideas and how ideas develop, which used to be sort of this, you know, this theory came and then that theory came and then this book was written and then, you know, Spinoza came and then this other guy came and changed his mind. So it was much more in the abstract. Um, and I think then you had this sort of movement to... Um, look more at things around it. So when intellectual history used to be this abstract idea, then it was an idea, okay, let's look at the surroundings, right? Let's look at the material history around it. Let's look at the social history, at the cultural history. And um, to some degree, I think, you know, there's a point where you think it's going to reduce everything to, you know, that level, to say, okay, well, every idea can be explained by the social surroundings. And I think that's a little bit what you were talking about in terms of, you know, does Rambam, does everything come from, you know, who else he was talking to, right? Is it all just a question of that? And I think what you're getting, at least what I'm seeing now, and I'd say like my generation of scholars, is really an attempt to do both. So to say this isn't, ideas cannot be completely reduced to what's going on historically at the time around it and to just, you know, social reasons and economic reasons and political reasons. There are ideas, too. But to actually be especially interesting, and that's where I think it's, you know, I, th- I think that's where history can really bring more and shed more light is to look at how these interact, right? How, how, how do both of those interact? How is something similar and yet different in different points of time? How would, for the you know, sake of, for example, your example, right? How would the Rambam have thought similarly had he been in a different time and place? And how would he have thought differently? Of course, you know, we can't do these thought experiments, but you could often compare similar ideas, especially when you're studying the history of Alachai, you have the benefit of such a long tradition and a long textual tradition, because we don't have to necessarily deal with oral histories in Southeast India or whatever. We have long textual traditions, so it allows us actually to look very nicely at, well, how does this idea develop here, and how does it there? And they often know about each other, and they share the same tradition. So in that sense, I feel that the field of intellectual history, at least, has 
in a way, um, come to a place where it actually becomes, I don't know if easier, but it becomes definitely mutually beneficial in the sense that, you know, knowing about how how a certain culture developed, what in my case I deal a lot with um, the printing press and with knowledge organization, so how knowledge is organized. Um, one of the things I look at is how is halacha different when it's organized as a codification, for example, the Shulchan Aruch, versus when it's just compiled without any order, or how is it different when it's codified but printed, as in the Shulchan Aruch, or when it's codified but not printed, as in Mishnah Torah, for example. So looking at those kind of differences, it actually teaches you a lot without necessarily reducing and saying, well, it's all because of, you know, for example, right, it's all because the Shulchan Aruch was printed in the 16th century, and that's why Halakha looks the way it does, and it wouldn't have before, and, you know, it changed and somehow reduced it and take away the essential. We say, no, these tendencies existed before, they exist after, they're always there. What does this strengthen? What does this make less? So I think if you... You know, if you don't stick to those very gross stereotypes of, you know, the historical being, well, it's all about, and I think, you know, to some extent with legal realism, that right, if you don't stick to that stereotype, that all it does is reduce it to external factors, and then there's nothing left. Um, if you nuance it a little bit, and you give these cultures, or in our case, al-Khari, credit that there's some sort of content to them, and that they are consistent, it's not all reducible, it can actually explain a lot, and it can actually really be beneficial. Thank you. Yael? Sure. So I would say, first of all, that, um, you know, even though I think it's clear that in my field there are some real strong um, and, you know, difficult to overcome kinds of tensions between what goes on in the yeshiva and the academy, that gap is also um, one that in some ways is... um, you know, a bit of a fallacy because the kinds of tools that um, are employed in the academy are kinds of tools that many of the traditional mafarshim employed um, within the um, kind of confines of what tools were available to them at their time. So the grammarians, um, you know, mostly from medieval Sfarad, um, used the tools that they had from knowledge of you know another Semitic language, so Arabic mostly, to help understand the Hebrew that you find in the Tanakh. So today we have access to even more languages. Um, so this is the kind of thing. I mean, we have these tools at our hands that do require you know years of study in a way that might not be appropriate for the Beit Midrash, but are appropriate in the academy that allow us to understand words. I mean, just at the lexical level in the Tanakh, to understand a word that might be difficult um, by drawing on cognates from other languages that we now have access to. Um, This is just one, I think, very simple way that, um, you know, the academy is able to enhance the kind of Tanakh study that goes on in the Beit Midrash. Um, but it, of course, gets larger than that, and you know, even recourse to um, you know knowledge of history from the ancient Near East, from you know knowledge of archaeology in Eretz Israel. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you know you find a note somewhere in the Ramban where he says, you know, I went to Israel and I saw this, and this helps us understand you know this pasuk here. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine if Ramban had access to the 
um, you know, the results from the excavations going on in Israel today and during the last century, like, do we think he would have ignored that? I mean, to me, that's, it's not even a question. So I think there, there is so much that's going on in the academy that is so obviously able to enrich, um, you know, any person's study of Tanakh, even if they're not able to access um, some of the primary sources because of the years of study that are required in order to access them in the original languages. Um, but there's a lot available in translation, and there are teachers who are capable of introducing them properly. Um, but I'll add just one more thing. I think that the kinds of questions that academics ask can sometimes illuminate study of Tanakh in ways that you, you know, wouldn't just get from looking at Tanakh in a traditional way. So, for example, um, you know, I, I think this is this is a famous one. The, the comparison of the structure of the Brit to um, ancient Near Eastern treaties between a suzerain or sovereign king of the, you know, the ruling um, you know, state and vassal kings who would have to pledge their allegiance to the, you know, the sovereign king and the sovereign king would promise them certain benefits and protection um, in exchange for that. And there's this whole structure, a very formalized structure to these treaties that you can identify in um, you know, the breach between Hashem and B'nai Israel in Sefer Shmon and in other places in the Torah. And you know, that raises questions such as, you know, why is the breach formulated this way? And the way that that enables us to think about the relationship um, between Hashem and B'nai Israel that's portrayed in certain parts of Tanakh is yeah, you know, it's just something different than what you would be able to do without those tools. Uh, so these are just a few examples. I'd also like to turn uh, people's attention, uh, as many of you know, Yaakov Elman, Professor Yaakov Elman, uh, passed away not long ago, and a lot of his writings were circulating on the internet. And one of them that caught my attention was actually a response to Rav Lichtenstein. So it's all. Of Lichtenstein, I don't remember the context. I think it was one again one of the Orthodox forums about academic Jewish studies, and he was very critical um, of the approach of Talmud study in particular. Uh, and uh, and Yaakov wanted to defend the study of, of academic Talmud study. Uh, that actually, one of the things where Lichtenstein lamented was how difficult it is to get high school kids interested in Habayot Rava. Just like it, it's just difficult because that they don't relate to it, whatever. And Yaakov pointed out through his study, particularly as you know, he started this whole field uh, that Shai Sekunda wrote a book on this Irano uh, Jewish studies and uh, understanding the Talmud in its context. And he said, if you understand like uh, Machoza or uh, just the neighborhoods of these different Amoraim and th- let that illuminate some of the conversations that are going on in the Sukhyas uh, themselves, we can actually excite our high school students and even some college students to what is going on in the Talmud and show them that it's really still a very living text because these were real people. That just contextualize, not saying that their position was predetermined somehow, uh, like reduce it to a socioeconomic position. But if you sort of know the world in which Rav Huna was living, and let's say uh, Rava was uh, had a different perspective, um, you could understand the same way we would un- like today. Every 
kid understands that Eretz Israel and America are just different Jewish worlds, even the Orthodox. Even though there's a lot more intercourse between the two, it just the, certainly the Haredi. Having I have family in, in the Haredi world, you know, from both both like in Lakewood and um, and in Meir Sharm and Bnei Brak, and those two don't fully understand each other. And you could say, don't say Haredi that, that there is real specific differences, and that could help us understand some of uh, the way they look at the world Jewishly. Um, and so Yaakov was trying to defend Talmud's academic Talmud study that it can actually illuminate something from a pedagogic. Uh, standpoint. Um, I do want to turn. So, so can, can, can I jump on this? Sure, please. So I, I just want to make a, like a, a structural point and then an example. Is that I think part of what's going on is you know, without using the word modern orthodox in the deep sense, right? But like we all live in both of these worlds to one degree or another. So I think part of what's going on is that um, it, the result of not doing something like this is that you just have to draw a sharp line between my. Jewish life, my intellectual, my um, from life, my mitzvah life, and my other life. And, you know, that works for some, and that doesn't work for others. Um, so we are all involved in translation projects. And I think sometimes, right, we're bringing the outside in, and sometimes the inside out, uh, or, or both all the, all the same time. So I think that, that the way to think about this is sort of, what are the other options, right? I want to think, like, imagine a world in which in which from people are not involved in this in any way. So people are still going to ask these things and talk about these things. Uh, and I don't think you can avoid that because we live dual lives to some degree. But I, I want to give an example because I, I think, and this is to the pedagogic point, that a lot of what I try to do is, I think legal theory or legal uh, <laughs> philosophy, if you will, it helps raise, uh, like clarify the stakes of, of legal debates. And the Gemara is nothing if not legal debates, but its stakes are sometimes occluded unless you're, you know, a super genius and you can, like, see it through the language of Gemara. I certainly can't. But I found that when I understand this topic, the Alma, so to speak, all of a sudden, subtle things in the Gemara, the Rishon, the Chron, whatever it is, like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Because, of course, Gemara feels very long, and it is, but it doesn't actually always tell you what it's thinking. It's, at the end of the day, you have, like, very concise answers, you know. Um, uh, you know, three or four words that then all the Rishon tried to figure out what it means. So let, let me give an example um, that to me totally changed the way I looked at the Sugi of Hashemah Sabeida. So Hashemah Sabeida, both because of who we teach it to, it's often one of the first things taught, um, you know, Elman Seuss, to, to, and because, you know, you think of what gets lost in our world. So we think of baseball gloves and bicycles and things like that. So there's a very, like, kid centric way that both Hashem Sameda is taught, so it's taught to and what it's about. And I think that's okay, this is like a cute mitzvah, like okay, be nice. Uh, and you know, return stuff. But then, if you start understanding that, well, in American law and in Western law generally, there is no chiyuv of Hashem Sameda. Because it, there's a political theory behind this, like, how can you if I didn't cause the loss, by what right do you demand my time? That gets interesting. So all of a sudden now we have this thing that, no, what the halacha says is that I have an obligation to you, though I didn't cause it. 
But then, of course, where are the lines to that, right? Because, of course, at some point, I'm going to have to preference my own uh, issues in my own life. I can't run around fixing people's roofs, and right? Because Hashem suddenly becomes very... There's this wonderful Tosefta where it says, right, not just something that's lost, but if you see the Nahar that's, that's coming in the Mitzvah Ligdor, right? You have to hire people and, and, and fence off the river and, and send it somewhere else. And then it says, if you're lost in the Kramim... So, so, so then, um, so then, Hashem Asimim includes being able to trespass on other people's lands. Just have to say something fascinating. Says, So that line, if you know something about property theory, will bring in your head because saying, oh, what is the nature of property? Is it a social compact or is it a sort of natural right? So the Tosefti here is taking a position on that, and the halacha then flows from that. So I think, to me, when you bring these background things, that at least to someone at my level are not evident from the internal sources alone, then all of a sudden, Hashem Sameed becomes a very rich discussion about the realm of responsibility we have to others, and where the balance of that. So the sugi is about if you have to get paid, and how much you get paid, for Hashem Sameedim, when it's Chayv, when it's Pater, all about this like vast social question that we ask in political and legal theory all the time. Now, maybe a genius can see that just from the internal sources. I can say I can't. And it has totally enriched the way I engage in this, and happy to talk about other examples later. We only have uh, another like two minutes to, to wrap up, and... Obviously, a lot of uh, Tamidim and Tamidot after yeshiva and, and uh, Migdal O's go, to, go on to university, or ac- just the academic world, they feel that uh, tension. I'm speaking on a personal level, what advice might you give them? Um, just as they're walking in, they're leaving yeshiva, or they're, just, they're making that first visit back, and they felt the, the tension of the two worlds, what might you say to them? We'll start with you, uh, Yael. I think this is very difficult because I think in some cases, you know, there might be appropriate mentors from the yeshiva or the midrashah that the student is coming from who they can, you know, continue a conversation with as they approach new tensions. But that's not always the case because uh, you need to have someone who actually is conversant in this in order to address it with them, so if they do have someone like that, then I tell them to stay in touch. Um, And in some cases, there is, you know, I I mean, my first semester of college, I took my first academic Bible course with a firm professor who ended up then being my advisor, you know, for my PhD, and I I mean, that was invaluable, and that could have not been my experience. Um, But this is very tricky because it depends on you know who is available to, to guide and mentor a person and there I don't think there are many people um, at least in my field who are qualified to do this. Thank you Tamara. So I was thinking about this a little bit um, in preparation for this panel and um, I was just thinking about the fact that um, I went to Base Yaakov before going to Migdalos and that I always thought that I'm going to go to Migdalos to learn more. Right? I'm going to go to like get the Jewish study stuff I didn't get back in Beis Yaakov. Um, and what ended up happening, in addition to being able to learn more, which was very special, is that in a way which I didn't expect, it actually prepared me for 
going to university and for the academic part, which I didn't think I would get at Amidosha. But I think there, I mean, we've been talking about this very generally as a problem of, you know, modern orthodoxy or being academia versus yeshiva. I mean, it depends what yeshiva. Um, probably, I mean, it sounds like the male also depends what academia, which mentors you have. I mean, in my case, I can't say I've had too many mentors who could help me navigate these things. Um, but I definitely think that if you go to a type of midosha where you have people who are on the one hand deeply committed and religious, um, and on the other hand who do not shy away from any questions, and who are able to hold com complex and sometimes difficult things in their mind together, and you have examples of people who study at a place like Michlele Tehotzog and who can teach, and you have someone like Gav Medan teaching Tanakh, it, it shows you that at least that it's possible. And in those terms, I think that gives you a lot. And I mean, I'd say in absence of mentors, I mean, I, I, have, I can't say I've found anyone to show me that way, but I mean, Chaim and I have had conversations about this often. Um, I found myself becoming very interested in Rav Yaakov Emden for some reason. Um, and I think it took me a while to realize why, but one of the reasons is that he broke this historical, philological, linguistic... Um, analysis of a hallowed Jewish religious source, in this case the Zohar, on the one hand, and I mean, and this academics are happy to talk to you about all day, and Rav Yaakov Emden is like, you know, an early mass skill, and he's like going to, you know, against all these mystical sources, but the stuff they sometimes overlook, uh, maybe because they're not looking deeply enough, is that in his Chufot, he uses Kabbalah all the time, and in many ways, he's, you know, he's I mean, he can be saying that the Zohar was maybe not completely written by Rashbi, and then, on the other hand, be using it everywhere, excitedly and enthusiastically. And in a way, like, that became my mentor, in a sense, right? Thinking, well, how, how did someone like that hold it together? Or like Yael mentioned, right? The Ramban, would he have ignored these things, right? So in a way, you, you can find mentors everywhere as long as you know that, you know, that these tensions are possible, and you can live with them, and you can hold them together. And, I mean, I think they make... Both academia and Jewish life, all the richer for it. I have 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can say it to a Talmud cover. So I'll say very simply, uh, one of my mentors is sitting here at the other end of this panel, uh, Rabbi Berger. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, for those who don't know, um, and uh, sort of my coming to Gush was in part uh, both a family connection and, and, uh, and Rabbi Berger's uh, connection. Uh, and we spent a lot of time, you know, 15, 20 years ago talking about these things. I also think that, you know, maybe in Berlin in the early 19th century, or in the late 19th century, people's um, sort of desire to be or not be from were, was like a very intellectual, oh, and all of a sudden they read, you know, a Bible theory and that's it. They, they took off the yarmulke and they left. Whether that was true, I'll leave to the historians. I don't think that's what happens. Um, I think it's that when people are affiliated with the community and see themselves in the Torah and in their community and in their yeshivot and in their ramim, which is, again, why I think Haritzion does such an amazing job, then these things are like, you know, questions, things people talk about and whatnot. I, I don't think, you know, people staying or leaving it today is, it, I think it's much more affiliational and much less intellectual. And therefore, I think that the strength that the yeshiva does in providing that affiliation, and I don't think any Rebbe or, or um, Rosh Bet Midrash or whatever it is needs an answer. It just needs to be a place to talk. And if we could talk about this, and I could see myself and the strength and the power that the yeshiva has and its religious imprint, I'm part of that. These other things, they find their boxes in a way that's much easier in my view.
Thank you very much. Uh, I know there's a whole list of other things going on, so we don't uh, want to take more time than we have. Thank you very much, and also thank you to the Shiva on the 50th anniversary.